KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio in depth. I'm Matt Leon. We are seeing much more action on the organized labor front than we have in a long time with regard to strikes, work stoppages, etc. So are we seeing unions regaining some power that had been lost over the last several decades? Is this completely pandemic-driven, or is it something more? And you throw in a worker shortage on multiple fronts, and could we see an adjustment long-term in the power dynamic between labor and management? Some fascinating questions, and to get some answers, we check in with Scott Deakel. He is an associate professor and chair of the Department of Business and Economics at Ursinus College. This is really interesting. Give a listen. So I feel like we are in a very interesting moment. We are seeing high-profile strikes or, or work actions. You look at John Deere, Kellogg, and you combine that with a labor market that is tight. Uh, right. We hear so much about the worker shortage. Are we kind of in a moment we haven't seen in a long time? I think we are. Um, for for the first time in a long time, the bargaining power for labor seems to be increasing, which is something we haven't seen uh, probably since the 1970s, I would say. Um, when you think about the power of labor unions, the number of workers involved in labor unions since the 1970s, uh, it went on a very steady decline through the 1980s and 1990s. And in the 21st century, Uh, We've seen very little strength of labor unions, particularly in the private sector. Uh, I looked at some numbers before our conversation, um, Matt, and a couple of things to think about. The the Bureau of Labor Statistics keeps track of the number of work stoppages in the United States that involve a thousand or more workers. And the data goes back to shortly after World War II, 1947. And from about 1947 to the late 70s, uh, it was typical to have 200 to 300 work stoppages of that size in a given year. And and it reflected just how large a proportion of the U.S. economy and its workers were uh, part of labor unions. But uh, since the late 70s, early 1980s, the number of work stoppages has declined dramatically. Uh, and, And since the turn of the century, uh, in any given year, there's there's never been more than like 30 work stoppages of that size. And even in 2020, uh, the year of the pandemic, there were only eight work stoppages of that size. So we're, we're starting to see uh, a bit of a rebound uh, in the places like you mentioned, like John Deere, uh, Nabisco had a work stoppage, uh, a brief strike as well. Uh, we see organizing activity. And it seems like uh, workers are, are starting to get some response from employers. Uh, I, I read about the John Deere strike, and very interestingly, John Deere, the, the management, is continuing to pay their striking employers uh, employees health insurance as they strike. Uh, typically in a strike, the employees have to rely on their union strike fund to pay their health insurance premiums. But John Deere, even as it disagrees with its employees on the, the details of the contract they're negotiating, they still want to make their employees feel wanted enough to actually pay their health insurance while they're on strike. And that is not something I think we would have heard about uh, over the last two or three decades. Before we dig into our current moment more, you mentioned how since the 70s, the work, why ha- why did we see this uh, constant 
lessening of work stoppages. Uh, how did we see the the power shift so much towards towards uh, management? Right. So I, I think uh, uh, several trends came into play, uh, and and maybe one very important uh, just cultural event you could say that I think changed a lot of minds. The the trends we see would be. Uh, manufacturing moving to the southern United States, which are right-to-work states. So those are states where you aren't required to join a labor union if they represent the workers uh, at your firm. Whereas in most northern Midwestern states, um, if your company has a labor union for your type of job, you can be required to join it. So in the South, you aren't required. It's up to you. And not surprisingly, that weakens labor unions. And you can see all kinds of stories of manufacturers from uh, heavy equipment and automobiles to textiles moving their operations from north to south, uh, you know, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and so on. The the other similar trend is just the trend of offshoring uh, manufacturing and other work entirely. So rather than just moving to the right to work south, particularly in the uh, late 90s moving forward, companies just shifted manufacturing uh, to other countries. So that too has weakened the bargaining position, not only of organized labor, but of non-organized labor. And then the the story uh, I think uh, everyone should remember too, and uh, maybe a lot of our listeners do remember living through it, was in 1981, when the federal government's air traffic controllers went on strike. And thinking back on that, that was early in the term of Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan ran and won pretty decisively uh, an election for president where he campaigned as the free market candidate who was for limited government. And so very early on in his administration, he had the situation where an organized group of air traffic controllers Uh, went on strike. And Reagan did something that was available to employers and executives, but had rarely been exercised. And that was, he had the ability to fire all of those striking workers. And that was something that employers really didn't do before that. But uh, Ronald Reagan, two days into the strike, made the decision to fire all of those striking air traffic controllers and uh, hire them with uh, new, uh, replace them with new hires. And I think that sent a signal uh, throughout the economy. I mean, labor unions were already weakening, but I I think that sent a signal that uh, management wasn't going to take it from the workers anymore. And, you know, if you look at the numbers, they were already starting to decline for labor unions, but it just, uh, I think, accelerated the decline and and sent a message that there was a, a new norm in United States society for how management and labor were going to interact. So coming back to our current moment, do you think this kind of growing relative strength we're seeing with unions and workers, was this something we would have eventually seen at some point just as the pendulum shifts? Or is this really pandemic-centric, things kind of coming together uh, Mm -hmm. and this is, if it wasn't for the pandemic, uh, we Mm -hmm. may not have seen something like this. 
Yeah, that, that's a great question because we can obviously see some, some policies that resulted from the pandemic and, and some responses to the pandemic that are driving uh, this, this reduction in the size of the labor force that's uh, give, creating a shortage that's giving um, uh, employees some bargaining power. I would say before the pandemic, there were two big trends that I saw that were uh, also going to contribute to increased bargaining power for workers anyway. Uh, number one is the aging of the United States population. Um, uh, the, the baby boomer generation, uh, as we all probably know, is in the process of retiring and has been for the last uh, 10 or 15 years or so. With that retirement, there has not been an equal replacement of those workers in the workforce. And if you look at the data starting about five, six years ago, uh, the size of the U.S. workforce as a whole has started to decline, as in the size of the working age population, people between the ages of 15 and 64. So that in itself is reducing the supply of labor in the United States, and that's going to give workers some bargaining power. Um, the, the other trend that I think started uh, more recently was the, the trend against free trade. So, of course, that, that really got uh, a boost from the election of Donald Trump in 2016. And uh, as he moved into office, he uh, began uh, renegotiating trade agreements, taking us out of trade agreements, imposing tariffs on China, Europe, Canada. And all of those things uh, tend to do things that uh, make production in America more attractive. And that's going to increase the demand for American workers and again, give them uh, more power at the bargaining table. So how are you looking at this moment? Are we at the beginning of a big picture thing that could truly shift the calculus of the labor management dynamic? Or are we kind of in a moment in a bubble where things have shifted, but we will eventually see kind of a return to uh, the norm? Although the trends you talked about are obviously still going to be in play. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, on, on the whole, I, I see a small improvement for workers and their bargaining power. And I think we'll notice it a lot over the next year or so. But beyond that, I am not as sure things are going to be a lot better for workers going forward. So, I mean, thinking about the short term, in the short term, we have workers who have a lot of cash at their disposal as a result of all the pandemic relief programs. And we also have um, a supply chain crisis where uh, a lot of goods and services from overseas are not making their way to the markets in the United States. And so those, those events, those, those policies, those factors are all things that give American workers uh, more leverage when they're uh, negotiating their pay and, and uh, determining their working conditions. And I think that's going to help them out in the short term. We also see that uh, with the Democratic Congress and president, they have a slim majority in Congress, and they're, they're in the process of making some, I'd say, incremental uh, changes that are going to benefit uh, workers and their negotiations with employers too. But looking over the long term, I, I see two big things that I think are going to uh, make it a little more difficult for
for workers to get back to say where they were in the 1960s uh, or 1950s. W one trend is the, um, uh, maybe not even the trend is the right word, but it's just the reality that uh, about half the states in the United States are right to work states. And those are states, like I think I mentioned earlier, where if there's a union representing the workers at an employer, uh, workers are not obligated or required to join that union. And so that, that of course, reduces union membership and bargaining power throughout the states. It, it's also just indicative in general of a climate in the states that's friendlier to employers. And I, I don't see the, the political forces that would drive change to those kinds of laws happening anytime soon. It seems like the, the pro-business spirit I think is still pretty alive and well in, in those states. And as, as long as that's a, a considerable part of the United States that has that kind of policy and that kind of uh, framework for business operations, I, I think it's going to make the country as a whole fairly friendly to business. Even if you're in a state that um, requires employees to join, join unions and has more employer-friendly laws, uh, that state still has to compete with the, the cheaper labor states. And so it's always going to be a constraint on what workers can get. But the other big trend I see that's going to uh, work against the workers is the trend of automation. It's, it's something that we kind of can perceive a little bit in our day-to-day -day lives, but behind the scenes in warehouses and factories and uh, even in, in grocery stores and convenience stores, you can see all kinds of tasks that workers used to do are now being done by robots or they're being done by computer software. I mean, think about in grocery stores, you know, since the pandemic started, do you find yourself checking yourself out more often at the grocery store? And I bet for a lot of us, the answer is yes. And you know, ironically, you know, in this pandemic that's provided so many benefits to workers, I think one negative for workers that's going to come out of it is that it accelerated the trend towards automation. Employers, uh, for safety reasons, uh, started to automate more so there could be less human contact during the pandemic. But now also to deal with their labor shortages, um, they're going to be automating more too. So going forward, uh, our, our business community as a whole is just going to be more reliant on automated activities and less reliant on workers. So I, I see that trend also uh, tending to reduce workers' bargaining power uh, in, in the many years ahead. That being said, is there something to the idea as we have a moment like this, and we talked about some of the strikes we've seen or proposed walkouts, uh, stuff like threatened walkouts, does that have kind of a momentum effect where other mm -hmm. unions maybe that would be less would be more hesitant to do anything to really shake things up sees what's mm -hmm. happening at deer and goes you know what uh the doors open a little bit if we're going to do it we got to do it now could we kind of see that over the next several months where this does take on a life of its own absolutely yeah and, and when i read the comments of labor union leaders, I see things like now is the time to act. Uh, I, I think they have a, a window of a year to 18 months uh, to really make some things happen for uh, their members. Um, interestingly, too, I think you're probably going to see just 
the creation of some new labor unions and probably some changes just in the structure of, of organized labor. There's a, a, what appears to be a somewhat successful campaign to unionize workers at Amazon warehouses on Staten Island in New York City. And uh, that campaign's actually not even being uh, organized from above by a national labor union. It's a grassroots campaign where uh, one employee in particular has basically started a union himself and is now at the point where he's got enough signatures on petitions to uh, have a, a vote to basically create a union to represent the workers at those warehouses. And that happened without uh, any intervention from uh, a national union. That worker just got it going himself. And, and I think uh, we're likely to see more of that. I think workers um, uh, in those types of jobs, like warehouse jobs, retail jobs, you know, what we call the frontline workers, uh, they, they rightly feel that they sacrificed a lot. They put a lot at risk during the pandemic and uh, they deserve uh, some better treatment from their employers. To that point, you mentioned Amazon. And I remember, I don't know, I feel like maybe middle of the summer, there was that a lot of focus mm-hmm. on the Amazon workers, I believe in Alabama, That's that correct, yeah. did not mm-hmm. vote to, to, to organize, but it was looked at, it was close. And I think people were actually, and please correct me if I'm wrong, they were encouraged by how close it was. Um, it would seem to me that Amazon... I think there's some debate over how close it was. Uh, my, my recollection is about... 70% of the workers voted. Oh, see, I, I was under the impression I, it was I, less than that. Yeah, now I think the Amazon employees maybe feel that there was some unfairness in the process, but the, the vote against that ratification was pretty overwhelming. And I, I think that speaks to, you know, not, not just the political reality and right-to-work states like Alabama, but also just the mindset. And uh, I think the mindset in most right-to-work states is that, unionization, organization of workers is bad for society as a whole. And that that mindset, I think, really has uh, filtered down to the workers who uh, would benefit from unionization. Why is that mindset? Why has that taken hold on such a level, you think? Is it just the country's been so pro-business for so many decades that it just kind of seeps into the kind of the marrow of the thinking of a lot of people? Yeah, I mean, it's a complicated question for an economist to answer, but I mean, I, I think that the the basic root of it is culture. Uh, you know, what do people assume about the relationship between management and workers? And uh, I think in right-to-work states, which are concentrated in the south uh, of the U.S. Um, the, the assumptions people have uh, is more that uh, the employer's in charge, uh, a union is mainly there to take away your money and use it for the benefit of the union officers. Whereas in the north, um, I, I think there's more of a mentality that managers and and owners have some obligation to provide their workers with a certain standard of living. And that, that's also associated with a greater amount of unionization uh, and, and pro-union laws in the, in the North. Um, and I mean, I, I think the roots of that, you know, go back hundreds of years to, to where, where those ideas come from and probably are, are a better question for a historian to answer. 
You mentioned the Amazon warehouse on Staten Island. We just talked about how it, it tried and failed at the one in Alabama. But it would seem to me that if there is a place or a company that could really, you know, turn the battleship in a relatively quick way, it would yeah. seem to me if if some of these union uh the these tries at unionization work at some of these Amazon facilities that could that be a game changer or am I overstating that just because of the sheer size of the company and the workforce we're talking about? Yeah, I, I think if, um, if, if this organization campaign on Staten Island were successful, that would definitely be a big shot in the arm for the labor movement as a whole. Um, Amazon has been successful in, in keeping these kind of campaigns at bay. In Alabama, I mean, they were already in a place, I think, that was inclined not to accept organization, but they, they also did a very good job, I think, of, of uh, countering the message the union uh, was was putting forth. The, the other thing Amazon, I think, uh, is on the record, well, I mean, they don't state it there, but it's come out in the news, is that they uh, – tend to make warehouse jobs the type of jobs people don't want to stay around in for longer than three years. And, um, you know, rate, rates of turnover in those warehouses is very high. So it's very difficult to organize a labor union if the workers in a place are constantly turning over. And, and I think maybe thinking about the future of, of labor unions and where they're going to take hold, I think that's um, actually an important thing for, for people to consider as they're thinking about how things work going forward. If, if I, I, it helps to form a union and organize workers, if you have a group of workers who have been in the same location doing similar things for years and years. Um, I, I know from my own experience, I, I actually have been a member of a couple of labor unions, one of which was at uh, Temple University, where the graduate assistants who uh, taught some of the classes at Temple and did some research assistance at Temple were organized into a labor union that had a contract with Temple University. And I can say from that experience that it was not a terribly strong union. We had a lot of uh, enthusiastic leaders, um, it, but at the same time, it was very difficult to get new membership because um, and grow the membership because uh, every, you know, within five to seven years, graduate students would graduate and they would leave and then new students would come in and uh, the leaders of the union would have to persuade the new students to join the union. And so it was a constant process of persuading new people to join the union. Whereas if you have uh, a pretty set workforce over a period of 10 years, uh, then you can gradually increase the numbers of your union members and create a situation where it's just sort of assumed everyone's going to be in the union and, and paying dues. So, you know, you think about our, our modern 21st century economy. How many employers are like that, where people go and work in a similar job for 10, 20, 30 years anymore? I mean, that, that kind of job is, is, is getting rarer and rarer. I mean, you still see it sort of at automotive plants, like you see at John Deere, maybe at food processing, like in Nabisco. But uh, warehousing, uh, you know, if the company sets things up like it appears Amazon has, they, they make sure workers don't stay around too long. And in plenty of other fields, you know, the, the assumption is you're not going to work on the assembly line or work as a data entry person for 30 years. You're, you're going to work at a certain job for a couple of years and then uh, 
either advance or um, move on to a, another job. So, so, so that kind of workplace culture, I think, is is also going to be a, a factor at against uh, improving uh, the bargaining position of, of workers in the U.S. You mentioned earlier uh, automation, uh, and I would look at that as kind of an offshoot of this moment. Are there any other ripple effects you could see that maybe these work stoppages, these strikes are leading to that we don't anticipate right away? Mm-hmm. Um. When I think about ripple effects, maybe not so much, maybe some surprising consequences or or some some, uh, surprising factors coming into play. Um, Like like one factor that uh, I I don't hear a whole lot in the conversation yet uh, people talking about is is the inflation factor. So like at at the John Deere uh, factories, uh, I believe the workers are looking at like a five or six percent uh, annual wage increase in their new contract. And, and that would have sounded really large a few years ago, but a few years ago, inflation was uh, 2% or less. Uh, and so that would have been a very substantial real increase in their wages. But now we're, we're living in a period where inflation actually is 5% or 6%. And so those, those wage increases, while they sound big, um, you know, once once the workers look at the prices they have to pay for rent and uh, other essentials, uh, it, it may not feel like that big of an increase. So, so, so one thing we we might see down the road, you know, in the next year or so, is that when when workers are bargaining for pay increases, uh, we might see some demands for for wage increases that we we really hadn't considered even you know thinkable before. You know, we we could well see workers looking for like seven, eight, nine, 10% uh, pay increases to offset the inflation. So, so I, I could see that being something kind of unexpected coming up. Um, you know, in, in, in terms of, of other ripple effects from, from all of this, I mean, I, I would say that to, to the extent that, that these labor unions get better contracts for their workers, um, you know, over, over the midterm, short-term midterm, I, I think it is going to pull up uh, the pay and wages of workers, even in, in non-union jobs. I mean, if, if you're in Moline, Illinois, and the John Deere workers there get uh, 6% pay increases in their contract, and you're working at fast food, um, you're probably going to get a better fast food job raise uh, over the next few years, too, for, for the simple reason that uh, McDonald's and and Wendy's needs to keep up with John Deere a little bit in, in those places. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio In Depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.